Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to this new episode of Today's Architecture. My name is Hugo Taillandier and I'm the host of this podcast. Podcast in which I interview people that will help you to create a better architecture. An architecture that enhances nature and serves humanity. Because I believe that the construction industry has the power to create a new world. A world where humanity and nature can flourish together. So where do we start? What do we need to know if we want to create a sustainable world? Hmm. And then I thought, if we're going together on this adventure, we need to know where we're going. So what is a sustainable world? What sustainable means? What is sustainability? So in this episode, we're going to try to answer these questions. And to answer this question, we are having a conversation with Dr. John Ehrenfeld. So the only thing you have to do now is relax, grab a cup of tea or coffee, some biscuits, and listen. After a long career in the environmental field, John worked for 25 years as the director of the MIT program on technology, business and environment. Retired in 2000, he became, until 2009, the executive director of the International Society for Industrial Ecology. In 2008, he published his first book called Sustainability by Design, a subversive strategy for transforming our consumer culture. His second book, co-write with Andrew Hoffman, is named Flourish, a frank conversation about sustainability. And finally, his latest book, published in 2019, is called The Right Way to Flourish, Reconnecting with the Real World. John is also the author and co-author of over 200 papers, reports and other publications. Between 2008 and 2012, he taught exploring sustainability in the MBA for Managing Sustainability program at the Marlboro College Graduate Center. He is also an editor of the Journal of Industrial Ecology. So John, I just read that you've been working on sustainability for almost 50 years. So where did this interest, this passion for the subject come from? Um, well, I really haven't been doing the sustainability and flourishing part all of my career. I've I, I spent most of it um, dealing with environment. Uh, I'm trained as a chemical engineer. I began really doing more technical things in the field, uh, doing research on air pollution and other forms of environmental issues or environmental uh, problems. Um, sustainability wasn't a, a word that anybody was concerned about when I began. My, my career really began back in the 60s. Um, uh, probably to put this in, in a time frame for you, I, I have been retired for now almost for, for 20 years. Uh, so this stretches back quite a long way. Uh, but sustainability, um, some 30 years after I graduated from MIT, I went back there to teach. And I got involved in environment there. And in the 
late 80s and 90s, sustainability came along. Uh, it hadn't been a, a real issue. Uh, it became a big global issue after the uh, United uh, Nations issued a report in which they defined sustainable development. MIT then began a program dealing with sustainability, mostly looking at technology, and I got quite heavily involved with that. So that's where my, my, my interest really shifted from uh, environment per se, looking at issues of solid waste, air pollution, water pollution, to the more systemic aspects which all got rolled into the idea of sustainability or then sustainable development. So that's where sort of the, the, the interest in that. Obviously, um, it's a critical issue. And um, um, I, I thought it was something that really needed to be looked at. So when I finished at MIT, I carried these ideas of sustainability with me, and I had planned to write a book about it. I had drafted it. Um, but about the time that I uh, retired, I was doing some personal training. And as part of that training, we all of the, the students were required to uh, sort of stand up and address the class and, and say something like, I am the possibility of, or I am the promise of. And when I got up to do this, I said, I am the possibility that humans and all life will flourish on the planet forever. And that, that just struck me, came from somewhere, but I kind of shifted the my interest from sustainability as it had been largely defined by the United Nations notion of sustainable development to the idea of flourishing. And as you have read my first book, Sustainability by Design, I defined sustainability in terms of flourishing. I simply repeated more or less what came out of my mouth. I said sustainability is the possibility that humans and all other life will flourish on the planet. And I used the, the metaphor forever, but I'm talking about for a long time. So that, that's the, the background uh, of, of, of how I got involved in this. Okay. So... Uh, in our email conversation prior to the to this meeting, you said that uh, so since your first book, uh, Sustainability by Design, which you published in two thousand eight, you said that you changed a bit your mind uh, about sustainability, and susta you said you told me that sustainability too often means continue to growth, which itself underlies much of the mess we are in sure can you can you develop on that like what was your your thought process and what is like the the new approach well i i started i uh, looking at the 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 you know the the very uh say the word sustainability or sustainable um it needs something to be sustained sustainability all by itself has really no meaning whatsoever it absolutely needs a reference 
And so as I began to uh, look at uh, particularly our work at MIT, where I, I ran a program called Technology, Business, and Environment, we looked at how business was managing for so-called sustainability. It basically was business as usual. They were simply doing less damage. Almost all of the efforts that I, I saw in practice were to reduce unsustainability. But it was there was no target about systemic resilience or what I, I would say sustainability has some meaning if you talk about the resilience of a system. But without it, it's simply maintaining the status quo. And if you, you look uh, not very, uh, without a lot of work at what most sustainable development programs are, particularly in, 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 the, in the developed countries, they're all about keeping things the same. Well, the problems have come out of whatever we're doing. And so it made no sense to me to continue to, to, to just simply look at sustainability as uh, in, in the conventional sense. And, and so I picked up on flourishing. Flourishing is a target. Flourishing is something that you can uh, observe. And it seems that we want a system that continues to provide flourishing people, a flourishing planet. So I've just dropped the use of the word sustainability because I think it's still being misused uh, terribly. And I just talk now about flourishing. Uh, but I'm certainly talking about creating a system in which the idea and the reality of flourishing is, in fact, sustainable. But first, we have to get there before we can talk about sustaining. Okay. And so what would look like a, a world, a flourishing world for you? Like you said, like a flourishing people, flourishing environment. Well, I, 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 def I mean, flourishing is a long history. I mean, the idea of flourishing can be traced back to, to Aristotle. A lot of people do. Uh, Aristotle talked about, in the, in the Greek word, eudaimonia, and it's been translated as happiness or thriving or, or flourishing as the, the, the highest goal for human existence. So the idea of, of, of that there was some state of human existence that was good, that represented sort of the, the, the best that humans can expect has been an old idea. I haven't changed that, except I, I changed the way in which I think it shows up and the means by which one can get there that are very different from, say, the way that Aristotle defined it. He said, if you lead a virtuous life, then you're flourishing. And he talked about you know, virtues of courage and their, their classic virtues. I, I say no, sustainable uh, flourishing is really the, the expression of, of the fullness of, of what both biology and our social ability, we're social creatures, can provide. And when you're living life as full 
fully as those factors allow, you're leading a flourishing life. It's very different from happiness. Happiness is a momentary uh, emotional uh, psychological state. Flourishing is a more existential notion. It's, it's about your life in general. So in the, in the broadest sense, that's really what I'm looking at flourishing. It's an existential way of being. In my latest work, define it even further and in a way that it gets more practical and, and, and allows for the consideration of how do you actually design systems to lead to a flourishing world in which humans flourish. And in the course of, of, of writing this last book, I came across a, a, a not very well-known American philosopher. His name is Loyal Rue. Uh, he wrote a book called Nature is Enough. It turns out to be quite a remarkable book. And though he doesn't use the word flourishing, he uses the idea of flourishing. And he argues that flourishing has two parts to it. And I found this an, an extraordinary notion and one that has really allowed me to, to build on. He says to, to flourish a human has to exhibit what he called personal wholeness and also social coherence. And the, 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 the twofold way he defines it turns out to be extremely uh, critical uh, when, when you, you move into the next part of what I've been writing about, how flourishing relates to the human brain. But first, personal wholeness, it's simply uh, the, the expression of you, yourself, who you are, it, it not expressing uh, what others have told you. It corresponds very closely to the existential notion of authenticity, that is, finding your acts coming from some place inside of you. You claim them. You own them. Uh, not easy to do because we are so easily influenced in, in our societies by, by others in authenticity. And social coherence is the measure of how well you are cohering to all the institutions that constitute a society. Can be governments, universities, schools. Yes, school, family, religion, you name it. We live in institutions from playing chess to voting in elections. All of those are part of institutions. Uh, broadly defined, um, any game is a sort of institution. It has its rules and it has its tools. Um, so it's really how well do we conform to the rules by which societies are created. So when you are both coherent 
with those and expressing yourself, you are flourishing. It, it, it is a measure of existence. And it shows up in indirect ways. There's nothing that lights up in your forehead and says, I'm flourishing now. But it, it emerges in basically the, the, the mood, the, the uh, life becomes peaceful, joyful. I, I have a whole list of kind of descriptors in my book. I can't reel them off by memory, but I can look them up. Um, so you can observe someone who's leading a flourishing life pretty much by just watching how they are. Uh, and I use that word meaningfully, how they are, how they are existing. Uh, I can't um, <clears throat> emphasize enough that flourishing is, is some, it's existential. It defines how we are as human beings. It, it is not as uh, so many others define it as some kind of psychological state. There's a whole area of psychology called positive psychology, at least uh, uh, quite um, well known in the United States. Um, it's trying to look at, at the positive side of psychology, which historically always looked at abnormalities. And they talk a lot about flourishing. There's a the, the leading psychologist in this field has written a book called Flourishing. But what he talks about flourishing is not at all what I am speaking about. He's talking about a psychological state. I'm not. I am talking about an existential state. And that, that's a very, very critical difference because as we'll develop, I'm sure you go, uh, what it takes to build a system that affects human existence is very, very different from building a system that focuses on momentary psychology and psychological outputs. So that, that's a long answer, um, but I think it, that, that flourishing demands such a long answer because it's, it's as far as I know, um not I, I don't know anybody else who's who's defined it in, in exactly the way I have. Okay. It seems to me that flourishing is not something that we can find outside. The solution to sustainability by flourishing is not something that we are looking to find outside, but more like inside of us. And once we are a flourishing person, we can create a flourishing world well I, I'm not sure whether it's before or after I yes <laughs> I agree with you and uh, uh, let me jump then from that discussion into sort of the second half of, of, of what I have been writing about and and that is that you do have to look inside. I had written this book, the second book. I had written a draft of the second book and sent it to a publisher uh, who had published actually my, my very first book, Sustainably by Design. Um, it was rejected, and I think I understand why. Uh, but the editor sent me a copy of a book 
that they, in their catalog, and said, you'll really like this book. <laughs> well, I started reading this book, and I not only did like this book, but I it, I, I just opened up a new world to me. It's a book by a British psychotherapist and scholar called The Master and His Emissary, a guy named Ian McGilchrist. McGilchrist has worked, I don't know how many years, and this book is the culmination of all his work. He basically argues that the bi-hemispherical nature of the human brain, which is divided brain is found in, in, in many other species, but in the humans, the left and the right side of the brain attend to the world very differently. And as I read this book, I just saw patterns of, of coherence with my work and others just appear like magic. So I, I rewrote this book, and uh, I did get it published after that. But the, the interesting, intriguing sort of aspect of this is that and I'll have to explain as we talk more about the brain, but the two halves of flourishing, personal wholeness and social coherence align with the right and the left brain, respectively. Personal wholeness is the way the right brain works and social coherence is the way the left brain works. But what's even more intriguing is that uh, in this book, McGilchrist spends about half the book to describe the brain, just these two aspects. And he, about the, in the second half, how cultures reflect the dominance of one side or another. The earliest societies, he argues, were right brain dominant. They were connected to the world, cared for the world. But after the Enlightenment and all of our understanding and literacy and the scientific method, the left brain has become dominant. And he argues to the danger of the world today, we're becoming just so left brain, we're disconnected from the world. And so here is here is a, a, an argument that uh, as to why flourishing is is basically missing from the world today. That if we are indeed need both sides in some kind of balance, then if that's not the way that human beings are, and the brain is is plastic, it changes, and so it's. All of, all of what McGilchrist writes is, 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 is plausible. So as I developed the, the, the book, I was able to sort of make a, a, a logical or practical progression from one, one defining flourishing as having these two aspects, personal wholeness and social coherence, seeing how they line up with the two sides of the brain, arguing that 
as McGilchrist does, that the unbalance in the modern world is the cause of a lot of issues. And then, well, how do we go about rebalancing the brain? So it becomes a, a, a design model as well as an explanatory model. So that, that's the general structure of, of, of this last book. I think it's, uh, I find it, you know, I'm the author, I'm very positive about it. But what's happened is that this, the, the uh, prior to this model of the brain, it's a possible explanatory and design basis. All my work and basically what goes on for sustainability everywhere is, is fundamentally technological. We're looking for fixes. And though I haven't talked much about it, certainly the first book argued that that's not going to work. These fixes are not able to address the underlying causes for the lack of sustainability in the global system. Mm, okay, that's really interesting. That really talks to me because I've been recently reading books and paper about like all how did we lose our emotional inten emotional intelligence and how to get it back. And it seemed that the right brain is, from what you said, is our emotional yes. intelligence. Yes. Yeah. D Daniel Goleman's work I, on emotional intelligence. It's all focused on the, the right brain. Um, I didn't mention much. I, I should probably to try to make more sense. But basically, McGilchrist argues that the right brain is connected to the world. The right brain is what we are using when we're present. When, like today, I'm present with you, and much of what is coming is coming from the right brain. It's the source of creativity. It's the source of empathy because it's connected. Empathy requires some kind of connection. And um, existentially, it's the home of, 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 say, Martin Heidegger's fundamental notion of, of care, sorga, care. The left brain, on the other hand, is only contains fragments, abstract pieces, categories, generalizations that have been collected from the past. It's completely disconnected from the world. So when the two sides are always working together, it's not like, I, I, although I might use in my speaking a left brain person or a right brain person, that only refers to the sort of dominant behaviors. But the, so when the left brain is the dominant one, it's presenting or representing to the right brain stuff from the past. Now that works very well when you're in institutional situations because they're largely controlled by past practices. You, you don't want to break the rules. You want to follow the rules. Uh, you play chess, you break the rules, you can't play chess. So 
the left brain is the is the the site, the source, the foundation for one half of flourishing. So you need it. It it it's the one out of which social coherence comes. But the right brain—that's the left brain. I may get—I I sometimes slip and <laughs> use the wrong one. The right brain, on the other hand, is the foundation, the spring, the ground for authenticity. It's—it's it's the real you. It's living in the presence. It's connected. McGilchrist Chris uses a wonderful word. It's about betweenness. There's nothing between. We are connected, you and I, right now. And much of what's happening here is a good balance. We have no rules, basically, for this conversation. So I don't have anything in my left brain except some facts. And so the whole conversation we're having is the right brain is kind of between us. I'm, I'm, that's how I am trying to figure out, make sense of what you're asking me. And then going over to the left, finding the facts, bringing them back, and putting them out for you. So that represents a, a nice balance. But both sides are very, very different. Now, I find that it's kind of dichotomous. There, there are two, you know, things are, it's a little bit black and white when the left brain is working, it creates a world that is very different from the one that the right brain is doing. And this dichotomy shows up in, in, in so many different ways that it's, it's astounding. I mean, it says to me, it's too uncanny that the guy McGilchrist has to be right. That they, they, he's really hit it. Uh, he's not the scientist that has created the data. His book is a collection of probably every report that's ever been written on the one side of the brain or the other. So it's a masterful piece. But you find this dichotomy in 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 uh, philosophy, in the the philosophy of science, in the work of the American philosopher Thomas Kuhn who argues that science is, who wrote a, a classic book on, on sort of how uh, sci revolutions in science. And he simply divides them into normal science and revolutionary science. Normal science is, the left brain is in, working. It's using all the abstractions that have come before. And uh, revolutionary science is clearly the right brain it's it's it it's it makes metaphorical jumps, uh, and that it, it's creating something, and you find that there's so many other aspects fit this yin and yang. Since um, flourishing is is an existential notion, it shouldn't come as a surprise that there's a lot to learn from reading existential philosophers, and if you read Martin Heidegger. His whole notion of, of he divides the world behavior into authentic and inauthentic or indifferent or undifferentiated. Authentic behavior is all right brain. It, it is the caring, basic character that he says distinguishes human beings from all others. It's what makes us exist and not just be.
an object. And indifference is the kind of behavior that occurs in institutional settings. So here you have this this uh, very, very arcane, hard to grasp philosopher. Heidegger's known to be extremely difficult to get your arms around. But it boils down to, yeah, he's been writing about the right brain as different from the left. Um, and it becomes very clear. And on and on. So here is this notion of flourishing that arose earlier and a model that explains how you get there and why perhaps it isn't around, why there is little flourishing in the world. And a model that suggests, okay, let's rebalance the brain. Let's do things that strengthen the right brain and keep it active. And designers, including architectural designers, know how to do this. <laughs> yes, well, well, I personally, I don't really know how to do it. So what, what would be the steps? What would be the, the process to follow to reactivate our right brain, well, our creativity? Well, yeah. well you know, designers, uh, one, of, one of the features of, of, of design today, particularly let's look at, at uh, computer um, devices of all kinds. Uh, one of the, the criteria that uh, designers use to uh, uh, in 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 designing software is to make them user friendly to make the device disappear but that's just the the wrong way so you 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 you're engaging the left brain and and, and uh, the 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 actual sort of the presence of the device disappears technology in general tends to do that it it puts something between you and the world and and that's another way of saying it shuts out the right brain because the right brain is the one that is connecting you to the immediate world the presence um but there's a lot of design that does the opposite uh it's quite familiar everybody is uh, my 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 epitome of of, of example is a a, a uh, um, my gosh, I, I, I'm old enough I lose words, but it's the, uh, uh, the Dutch call it a drempel. It's the um, rise in the road that, oh gosh, my gosh, what do you call it? The, uh, the bump in the road that uh, cars have to slow down for. Oh, the, um, oh God, I'm... My English is not as good as yours. So I know, just, that's amazing. The slow, slow... Okay, okay traffic... Uh, oh, God. Anyway, that causes presence. It's a device that brings you into the present. You cannot ignore it when you're driving. It stops. You have to look around. Driving is largely unconscious. We learn that we're so good at driving that our left brain is in control. The right brain is monitoring what's going on, but it's automatic. You're not thinking about steering. You're not thinking about 
slowly putting on the brake. When you hit a traffic bump, bump, yeah, you stop and your right brain takes over. So that, but you can design all sorts of things to bring that presence. And you can do it in architecture as well. I don't know if you, in your studies, have have uh, uh, come across the work of, of, of uh, Chris Alexander or um, a guy named Norberg, Norberg Schultz, who write about the phenomenology of architecture. And basically, they're talking about the difference between place and space. Yeah, Norberg Schultz's book called Genius Loci. It's about the spirit of place. And basically, it's about are you are you designing for utilitarian purposes in which you're designing spaces in which people do things unconsciously? And it and and if you want that, then it's very important to be careful so that the left brain stays engaged. But if you want to engage the right brain, you need to make them places in which there's the notion is, and again, I go back to Heidegger, it's called dwelling, in, in which it's a home. And so you're, you're being connected. So the, the, these that you can do in art, artifacts as small as a mobile device or as large as a building use design practices that engage the right brain okay so bringing back presence to people through design right now and i'll give one more i'll give another example it's that you know we're we're dominated here you and i even this moment we're using what we might call social media now we're having a conversation and we're being very careful to listen to one another but an awful lot of the social media, although they connect people, they connect them only through their left brains. They're, they're, they're not connected empathetically. It's working pretty well for you and I because we have agreed, whether we did it in writing or not, that we're going to really listen to one another. The whole idea of doing this podcast doesn't work unless I already have said I have to listen very carefully in order to provide what what Hugo is looking for. So there's a context that's missing in a lot of places. There's a lot of work, uh, particularly there's a couple of uh, women uh, historians, sociologists in America that have looked very carefully at the uh, alienating impacts of social media. Uh, w- one is um, a Sherry Turkle in MIT. The other is a woman named Sushana Zuboff. Uh, both very good researchers, database research uh, that shows how screens sort of push us into the left brain, and and that that. Uh, young kids who are using this at a time when their brains are still very, very flexible and plastic are not 
able to enter into empathetic relationships. They, they, they do not know how to converse. And so that here is just the opposite. We've designed a very important piece of technology to suppress the right brain. So, and it shows, it shows. There's a tremendous, I mean, things are going badly in the world right now with the virus, but, you know, there's an awful lot of alienation that, that is present in, in, in modern industrial societies. So design of, of the surrounding, institutional surrounding, technologically or otherwise, that is primarily or solely utilitarian, is, is pushing us into the left brain and leaving out the right. And so it argues, well, let's do it differently. Let's start to design things to put speed bump. That's it. Speed bumps is the word I was looking for. Yeah, that's the word we were looking for. <laughs> <laughs> but there's also another whole area that I do describe in, 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 in my book, and that is we can directly strengthen the right brain. And that is through meditation or mindfulness. Mindfulness is exactly what it says. It's, it's, it's connecting to the world. It's shutting down the left brain. The whole idea of meditation is to quiet the mind. Well, what they're talking about is quieting the left brain. And so you can begin to literally sort of metaphorically strengthen the muscle of the right brain through mindfulness exercises. So it's a way of, of deliberately training our mind, training us to begin to be able to more consciously, more deliberately, intentionally put ourselves into the right brain dominant mode. And that allows for the other half of flourishing. That's where our autonomy comes from, our our authenticity comes from. So I have no idea how effective these will be. Um, I can talk a lot about, I haven't talked much about sort of the, the, the consequences of the left brain trying to describe the world which leads us to a lot of, of, of sort of technological hubris and optimism. But when you give that up and you start to think through the, the right brain dominance, uh, you can only talk about possibility, whereas the left brain talks about probability. Uh, these, again, there's a whole, it's fascinating. But one of the things that, that, comes along with a with a arguing that the right brain is the way to see a complex world is that you lose that ability to to sort of make promises of this is going to work you can only talk about possibilities so i have to put a kind of tagline on everything i've just said about mindfulness and design that um 
you have to be pragmatic about it. It it, it sounds right, but you 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 can't, can't be certain. And we got to try these things out. You, what from what I understand, like the left is more like the Newtonian science. Yes. That we got, and the right would be the 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 quantum science that we got. So which it opens like to a really wide field of different possibilities that we cannot predict. Right. We can influence right. by it by our, our own behavior, but we can't predict the uh, the the way it's gonna happen. Right. Right. So, and that that says that you know philosophically we've 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 the the left brain has led us down the wrong path. That has led us into a, a world of positivism, of of generalities, of of science, but that the world that we live in is complex. And it's interesting that the, the big problems of today are problems of complexity. Global warming is is the result of, of, a, of, of, of perturbations of a very complex system. And I'm using complex sort of technically as one in which you can't fully describe analytically. So when we get into complex systems and whenever there's a human being involved, things are complex because we can't predict what you or I are going to do at any moment. Uh, positivism is, is, is not the right way to go. It's pragmatism. It's a different way of, of understanding and acting. And pragmatism takes says that, that it deals with complexity. It deals with the now. It, 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 it is contextual, whereas Science is decontextual, acontextual. Science only works when you take things out in out of their context and can generalize. But pragmatism says <clears throat> that the world changes and it's different. I can't be sure that what I think about it right now is going to have the same meaning in, in another moment. And they're connected with the right and left brain. Pragmatism requires connection, observation, being there, seeing things, not being blinded by your presupposition. But that doesn't mean we have to be ignorant. Uh, you, you, want to, you can certainly want to start with the, you know, the best knowledge you have. So you, 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 may, you may use your, your, your science to give you a start so that when you interact with the system, you're not just striking out in the dark, but then you have to be, you, you have to say, okay, but I better watch what happens. Whereas when most scientists work, they, they know they're, they, they, they do something, you walk away from it because they expect it to behave exactly as their models tell them. Hmm. All right. So what about technologies? Because technology, as I, I can see from my perspective in the construction industry, we are using more and more technology to design building and construct building, but also but also now technology start to be part of the building, like we start to design uh, smart buildings. So how can we implement this technology into the building with without engaging only the left brain, but like awakening 
the right brain? Well, uh, we well, there are two things we can do. One, we we can begin to. Um, it's interesting. I just gave a talk to a group of designers this last week. Um, we can appreciate that 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 uh, most designers um, think about as what how technology uh, changes how we do things, what we do, what we do. But it also changes who we are. Technology has an ontological or existential dimension. Um, so we can be aware of that. And we can, that means we, we can, in both application and innovation, be aware that the technology will affect the right and left brains differentially and to uh, develop either rules how to use it or build in features that make sure that the right brain doesn't go to sleep. We can design uh, practices that require that we break just the opposite of what any, you know, most every business school would teach you today. Uh, build in inefficiencies, build in breakdowns, build in steps along the way that require that you become present, that you ask presence, as ask questions. Um, there are good examples of systems that do this. The, the um, model system for uh, you know, quality engineering is the Toyota, so-called Toyota production system. And it's built around practices that stop things when they go wrong and shift into a right brain mode. My favorite piece, which I often quote as an example to try to illustrate your question, is the, the what Toyota calls the five whys question, why. And when something goes wrong, the first thing they do is ask, well, why? And you usually come up with an answer, the motor broke. But then they say, well, why? Well, the motor, why did the motor? And, and by the time that you have gotten down into the third or fourth why, you're, you're much closer to probably what was the root cause. And so it's a way of, of putting your presuppositions aside and realizing that in a complex system, what may look like the cause is possibly the right way to go, but is very likely not the cause. So you need a way to really shut off the left brain and be able to work with the right. That always requires some kind of breakdown or stoppage. So you need to build in interruptions or build in systems that force interruptions when things aren't going the way you want, when you're getting unintended consequences or you're just not getting the kind of outputs that you want. 
you know, instead of sending it back to the engineers that are absent from the scene, you want people who are there observing, getting, suspending their belief structure and maybe getting to the right cause, the correct cause, so that they can fix these permanently. Okay. I never heard of the 5Y being part of the the Toyota system, but I... Well, that's part of it. Yeah, that's just a piece of that system. I, re I really like it. It's like definitely a pragmatic approach to a problem. And we, as you said, go deep down to the root of the problem. And obviously, it's better to solve a problem that way, I think. Yeah. Now, I want to come back to something you said about yin and yang. You say it, can, it applies to flourishing. So do, does it mean that flourishing involves decay at some point? Can, can we be, as human being, can we flourish constantly? Or do we have like to have a part of our life where we're going to face decay? And as a, as a human society, can we flourish for, I don't know, like a really long period of time, 100, 200, 500 yes. years? Yeah, I have to go back to the definition. And I said that, you know, flourishing is, is, is the uh, uh, full expression of the, the biologic and existential potential of an organism. So what you're talking, I've been talking largely about the existential because the biologic is already being driven by the genetic composition. So for humans, they have only one life. Uh, and it means that even as you begin to grow old and head toward your death, you still can flourish. For a plant, it does mean re, for a perennial, it means coming back every year. And if the plant doesn't, it's certainly not flourishing. And so that, 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 um, but there's not much we can do about that. We, we, we do the best we can. We, we provide, we try to, to make, you know, cure people. The COVID epidemic has, uh, um, hampered the ability of flourishing on the biologic side. But at the same time, our lack of attention, our left brain dominance, has kept us really from dealing with the biology of the world outside. We pollute it. Uh, we take away habitats. Um, so the outside world isn't flourishing in, in, as, as, as it, it might due to our lack of care. So there's an interrelationship between the ability of the humans to flourish and the sort of life of the world to flourish as well. But the biology is pretty well fixed. And society doesn't flourish. Society is just a concept. There's not nothing. It's just it's just a word we describe to to uh, use to describe a group of people who who are linked to coordinate their action in some way. And so if you look at, if you stood outside and you look in and you see a lot of people who are flourishing, 
then you, you might say, okay, the society is flourishing, but it really isn't. Only the individuals are in fact flourishing. There is no such thing, thing as a society. It's simply a, 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 a institutional fact. A society can't flourish by itself. It is only going to be describable as flourishing when the bulk of the people in it that make up, that constitute it, are flourishing. Hey, that's the end of today's conversation with Dr. John Ehrenfeld, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I don't know about you, but I really like this concept of flourishing to be able to be sustainable as human being. I think if we implement the word flourishing in our design process, it can really create new perspective on the way we design buildings. If you want to learn more about this subject, go to the show notes, uh, reference and put link to every person, book, research mentioned in this episode and I also did further research by myself and I put like everything I could find on this subject so if you want to learn more about it go have a look I also recommend you to read John's latest book The Right Way to Flourish Reconnecting with the Real World it will give you a deeper understanding of this conversation well 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 I guess that's the end of this conversation thank you so much for listening Now feel free to leave a comment about this episode and what you think about the concept of flourishing. I talk to you next week, so I wish you a good one. Bye-bye. Love you.